0: Welcome to the 224th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, our discussion is about libraries and librarians in the pandemic. My guests are Melanie Myers, Jamie Taylor, Emily Drabinsky, and John Pollock. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 19th, 2021, there are 2,448,188 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 495,015 deaths in the United States reported from COVID-19, and that's up from 492,302 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Anita Schiller died January 23rd. And had been recognized for her research that led to greater pay equality between genders. This was written by Gary Warth and was published February 4th, 2021, in the San Diego Union Tribune. Anita Schiller, who brought to light the pay inequities for female librarians and co wrote an award winning prescient article on the privatizing of government information, is one of the country's, one of the county's, latest COVID 19 fatalities. Schiller, who died January 23rd at 94, worked many years at the University of California, San Diego. It was appointed a member of the California Council for the Humanities and received the highest honor from the American Library Association for what it described as her groundbreaking efforts to enhance the status of women in librarianship. She was born in New York City in 1926 and lived in San Diego since 1970, working at UC San Diego over the years as a reference librarian, social sciences bibliographer, and data services librarian. Her son, Zach Schiller of Cleveland, Ohio, wrote in a memorial to his mother that she was very young when she learned about the need for collective action from her parents. She met her husband, Herb, in New York and married him in Berlin, where he was working as an officer in occupied Germany in 1946. Once, while she was flying to Paris on a military aircraft with a friend, the plane caught fire and she parachuted over the eastern zone of Germany. Her son, Dan Schiller of Santa Fe, New Mexico, said her friend survived after the plane crash landed safely and his mother was rescued from a tree by Russian soldiers. Anita earned a master's degree in library science from the Pratt Institute and was working at the University of Illinois when she researched unequal library service delivered to poor areas in East St. Louis. She also conducted a major survey of salaries paid to employees by 2,000 colleges and research libraries across the country, revealing significant pay disparities between men and women. The work resulted in speaking engagements and the publication in 1968 of her study, Characteristics of Professional Personnel in College and University Libraries. It was the first such study that showed the extent of the disparity, Dan said. It has made her a kind of heroine for librarians, especially women librarians across the breadth of the United States. After their mother's death, Dan said he and his brother began receiving emails from people across the country, including from people they did not know, telling them of the impact she made on their lives. It does give you a feeling of, here's a life well spent, a life fully engaged in a cause, he said. His mother had other causes as well. She and Herb a renowned sociologist, media critic, and scholar, together won the 1982 Gold Penn Prize by the Los Angeles-based Penn Center for their article about the privatizing of government information titled, Who Can Own What America Knows? Herb Schiller died in 2000. Dan said his mother tested positive for COVID-19 on January 4th, but had no symptoms for about two weeks. After symptoms did appear, she was hospitalized just days before she died. She's survived by her son, Dan, his wife, Susan Davis, their children, Lucy and Ethan, and son, Zach, his wife, Gail Long, their daughter, Kimberly Long, and her children, Mirabelle and Justine. The public remembrance will be planned later. Okay, I'm excited to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guests. Emily Drabinski is Interim Chief Librarian at the Graduate Center City University of New York. She took on this role effective March 15th. The library building closed March 13th. Prior to joining the Graduate Center, Drabinski spent 10 years at Long Island University, Brooklyn as a teaching librarian and union activist. She edits gender and sexuality in information studies, a book series from Library Juice Press Litland Books. Melanie Myers is the Director of Collections and Engagement at the Jewish American Jewish Historical Society. Prior to joining AJHS in 2018, she was the Senior Manager for Reference and Outreach at the Center for Jewish History in New York City. She's an instructor at the Palmer School of Library and Information Science, Long Island University, where she teaches a variety of classes for the Special Collections Rare Books Specialization, including Special Collections Librarianship and History of the Book. John H. Pollock is Curator Research Services in the Kislak Center for Special Collections Rare Books and Manuscripts at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. He's worked in this department since 1995. His responsibilities include providing assistance to students and scholars and teaching and organizing class sessions centered on the collections. John holds a PhD in English from the University of Pennsylvania. He specializes in early American literature and history and early modern book history. His research has focused on topics including Native American languages and Benjamin Franklin and colonial education. And my fourth guest for this special session is Jamie Taylor. Jamie is the Discovery and Resource Management Systems Coordinator at UMass Amherst. During the pandemic, she's been both keeping library catalog and search systems live for remote teaching learning and research, and working on the five college consortium's implementation of Folio, an open source library services platform. She's currently working on a book chapter about project management in consortia. Her professional interests include organized labor, anti-racism work, library instruction from a systems and technical services perspective, and flattening managerial hierarchies more than is currently fashionable. And I want to also thank Um, A guest who's not with us today has been previously been a guest on COVID calls, but who helped pull this session today. And that's um, my friend and collaborator, uh, Zachary Loeb. So I'd like to welcome you all, Jamie, Emily, Melanie and John. Thanks for coming on COVID calls today.
1: Thanks for having us, Scott. Thank you.
0: So let me start the way I usually do. I'm just going to find out where everyone is calling in from and what the pandemic situation is, is looking like there. Emily, let me start with you, please.
1: Uh, Brooklyn, New York. My neighborhood is Kensington. Um, The pandemic looks much as it has for a very long time. Uh, Numbers are high, feels very unsafe. I would say masking is pretty, pretty good around my neighborhood. Uh, I've really been relying on running as a way to keep my, Head about me during all of this, so I'm ready for the snow to be gone.
0: Melanie, let me bring you in same question.
2: Um, I'm also in Brooklyn, but in a different neighborhood in Sunset Park. I would concur with Emily's um, assessment. it's it's been the same um, you know for about the last year. Um, but this neighborhood got hit really hard by the pandemic um, in Sunset Park. and um, so it's masking is not great in this neighborhood. Um, to be frank. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully as she said the snow will be gone. I don't really mind the snow. I grew up in Michigan. So this is fine for me. But, um, but I think we're all a little tired of just not even being able to get outside for a little respite, you know, with the sleek streets and the sidewalks. But
0: absolutely. J- John, same question to you. Sure. Um,
3: First, thanks for having us, and great to be with amazing colleagues. Uh, I'm in Philadelphia uh, in a neighborhood called East Mount Airy, and um, I spend some time on the university campus as well, a couple days a week, depending on the week. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit around Philadelphia. The, the city numbers are actually on the decline, according to the news. Uh, vaccinations, however, in Pennsylvania have been pretty abysmally slow from what I understand. And um, there've been a couple of impressive uh, local civic disasters in that area, which aren't really today's subject, but um, at the university side, apparently the numbers are either steady or increasing. And we've gotten some occasional warning signals about the student population, which is smaller than normal, of course, but nonetheless still there. And What the implications of that are will be, I think, are still a little uncertain partway through the semester.
0: It's something I'll follow up on maybe as we talk a little bit more, but John, since you raised it, um, and then Jamie, I'm going to come to you one second, is um, when you go on campus, is that elective on your end, or is that an expectation that you need to be there a certain number of days a week at this point?
3: Yeah, good question, Um, uh, and and kudos to the equity discussion, which I hope we can get to. uh, in my case, it's uh, I would say a necessary elective. Um, I, some of my colleagues and I came to the there really certain jobs that just we needed to do on campus and and just weren't getting done otherwise. Um, we've had nevertheless a relatively soft approach to f- compelling um, uh, staff to come in. Uh, that's changed a little bit recently. I think it, it's it's a complicated personnel situation. I would say. Um, um, and not easy to figure out. Uh, so it's only a small group of us, even, even in my own department who are in um, In other departments, there are stricter requirements for people who need to come in. Mm. It's
0: not a one size fits all by any means. In that. Wow. Jamie, thank you, John. Jamie, um, same question to you. Where are you calling from and, and what's it look like there?
4: Um, I'm calling from Northampton, Massachusetts. I work at UMass Amherst, which is about nine miles from here. Um, I've only been to campus once in the last 11 months. I was there in mid-May to pick up stuff from my office, and I have not been back since. Um, The situation in Western Massachusetts has been better than either most places in the country or even most other parts of Massachusetts. The Boston area has had a really rough time. town a couple towns south of here called Holyoke had a has a very large uh, old soldiers home uh, and they had a really really bad outbreak in the spring but here in Northampton not too bad even though it's one of the larger towns in the area um, that all said UMass brought back several thousand students to campus this spring uh, and they showed up about three weeks ago and predictably there is a quite a large outbreak that is only now being gotten under control um, We've been at the highest kind of operational posture of the university, the most um, restricted one for the last couple of weeks, because we were having 100 cases in students a day for about a week, and now we're down to 30 or 40 a day. So starting this coming Monday, things will be loosening up a little bit um, unless they tick back up. So it's been up and down, um, currently coming coming back down from a a bit of a crisis.
0: Jamie, I wanna stay with, with you and sort of get this first kind of question out there and and then others can join in. You know, there's been a discourse throughout the pandemic around the designation of essential work and who is an essential worker. And um, I haven't heard a definitive answer on that when it comes to uh, librarians and when it comes to libraries as centers of essential civic functions, even though to me, at least, it's pretty clear. And you know, I've talked with folks. I had a sanitation worker, Terrell Hagler, from Philadelphia, who's a tremendous force um, for raising money for sanitation workers. And sanitation workers in Philadelphia um, have not, to my knowledge, still been named essential workers. So a lot of people out there who are essential um, to the daily life of, of a democracy who have not been named such. I was wondering, you know, Jamie, i want to start with you on this. What, what's your stand on that? Like, are you an essential worker? formally, informally? How should we think about that when it comes to libraries?
4: So I'm going to say something that a lot of people probably aren't going to like to hear, and that's that, no, we are not essential workers. Um, We, I think I'm quoting Melanie here when I say there's no such thing as a bibliographic emergency. Hmm. Uh, We, unlike doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers, we don't preserve life. Um, We don't assure access to shelter or food or clean drinking water. Um, so by that metric, by the, the, the true meaning of essential, we are not essential to preservation of life in that way. Uh, I think the comparison to things like sanitation, and I think also grocery workers is really apt um, in that there have been declarations of workers as essential, whether kind of cultural ones like the idea that library workers might be essential. Um, but also saying, okay, grocery workers are essential, sanitation workers and mass transit workers are essential, but not actually treating them like they're essential, um, you know, low pay for especially people like grocery workers and dangerous conditions for sanitation and, and gro- again, grocery workers. And so the idea that one might be an essential worker, and there's no compensation in, in a way that is equal to that idea of being essential. If, if one is essential, one would be important. If one is impor- if the job is important, getting the job done is important. You'd think it would be paid as it was important. So when we think about essential, there's a couple things there. One, is it necessary for the basics of life libraries or not? And two, do we compensate those workers as if they were essential? And while we are for the most part compensated better than say the average person who works in a grocery store and depending where you are, maybe a sanitation worker or uh, a transit worker, but in some places not, um, we see this like this question of essential and what that means to the mm-hmm. government, to people who have money, to capitalism. Um, and so in some ways, yes, we might say that libraries and librarians are essential to thriving and a thriving democracy, uh, the roses of bread and roses, but... We're not essential to life. And in an emergency like this one, even though a year is a long time to be calling it an emergency, we're not concerned with the thriving primarily. We're concerned with the preservation of life. And libraries and librarians are not essential to that, especially when library as space um, is in direct contradiction to preservation of life. Mm -hmm. Having people in a space together right now is in contradiction to preservation of life forcing people to go to work and interact with people is in contradiction to the preservation of life. So by that standard, we are not strictly speaking essential, even though it is, as I said, the roses of the bread and roses.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for starting us off. I'm, I'm going to open that up. If anybody else wants to pick up any, any part of what Jamie said, if you wanted to react to what she said or engage this, this question. Yeah. About, yeah. Emily, I go can, ahead.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the question is like, are we essential in some like truth-seeking realm? Like, like probably not. Um, is anything essential? I've, although I could go down a rabbit hole on that, but I do think like, what do I get from being counted as essential? So I'm going into work uh, one day a week to my library in Midtown Manhattan. I'm going there because uh, I, had, I hadn't gone for eight months, nine months, and the mail was backing up. So Randy in the mail room needed the library to come in and retrieve the mail so that he could have space in the mail room for other kinds of mail, right? So it's like essential to Randy that I come in, uh, but I'm not on the essential workers list. And that means that I can't be compelled to work, right? So the essential workers list is people who don't have an option. So I could, I guess, say, Randy, screw the mail, just like let it crowd you out of your workspace. Um, But Randy is listed as an essential worker, uh, I think. Uh, I know that security is essential, right? Security is always essential, right? Those people are unable to not go to work. And so I think thinking politically about what you gain and lose by being counted as essential. um, And as the pandemic stretches on and I look at like, how am I going to make a claim for my library as a crucial public good for the city of New York if I, didn't see myself as essential or tell a story about myself as essential during the pandemic, that's starting to make me feel quite anxious.
0: But, you know, and, and to Jamie's point, it really puts you in a bind, if you argue, to become an essential worker, if you live in a society where that doesn't necessarily come with any privileges, in fact, it may just come with greater risk and no additional privileges or no additional compensation. I I'd want to um, find out a little bit what it's been like to do your, your work um, in this time. Melanie, let me come to you on this, just sort of an open question. and I want to hear from everybody on this. Um, how you had to modify what you do, given that uh, undoubtedly a great percentage of what you do has now moved into the online space. Melanie, starting with you, just in terms of patron services, um, how have you had to change your daily life, your daily work habits?
2: Well, I mean, our reading room is closed and it has been closed since March 15th. And Uh, of last year. And, you know, for special collections, we really depend on in-person visits for an enormous amount of our patron traffic. People come to look at these, uh, you know, these things as artifacts, as, you know, um, the physicality of the item. And while we can deliver some of this digitally, it's, um, it's not the same. And we can't deliver all of it digitally. We can't deliver even close to it digitally. So we, you know, we try our best. We try to be as accommodating as we can. We're very lucky that, because we're housed at the Center for Jewish History, there's a digital lab there. So we've been able to accommodate an enormous amount of requests to digitize material that had not been previously digitized. And um, I would say that's overall been, you know, incredibly positive. But, um, you know, it's it's really been difficult. And I think for us, though, honestly, the, the bigger hurdle is not so much the reference piece, because that we have you know, under control and people know we're closed. They know they're not coming in and they generally have been happy with whatever we can give them. But the bigger issue had more to do with the types of projects that we use to fund um, our staffing, which is largely based on archival processing, which you need to physically be there to work with the materials. And so if we're not hitting our grant benchmarks, if we're not hitting the funders benchmarks, then we're seeing a substantial reduction in our income. And that's been but we've been very fortunate and we've managed to, we've had great funders and donors and we've managed to just sort of think creatively about what's really necessary to do on site and how much more than we ever realized we could actually do at home. And um, and we were always able to do it, I think. But sometimes in special collections, we get, um, can be easy to sort of say, this is the way we've always done it and not think sometimes about other ways to do it until you're forced to do it. And now, now that we've been forced to, I think it's um, you know, it's just changed the way that we look at a lot of these projects and what we really have to be on site for, what's really critical. And that's been probably the biggest change I would say. I
0: mean, just to follow up on one, one piece of that as a historian and a person who relies on um, the work that you all do, um, I get a shiver down my spine when I think about if I had been a, a graduate student relying on a certain collection The particularly ones that are in process where you have a good relationship with the with the reference librarian with the archivist, Um, somebody who had gotten a grant to fund some research, and as you said, it should be completed in a certain timeframe. And now all of a sudden, um, I can't get access to those collections. It it seems to me, Melanie, that maybe um, you may find yourself in a position of emotional support for researchers like that at this time who just really want, they got to get those materials, right?
2: Yes. Um, but as Jamie well knows, because we worked together at the Center for Jewish History for many years when I was the head of public services, uh, managing people's expectations is part of the job. And especially when you have a background in reference. So, and that's something that, um, you know, we also have the reference department at CJH who are fantastic and who take a lot of that burden off of us. But yes, I find myself fielding a lot of anxious emails and phone calls from people about their research, about what they want. And for the most part, I think, you know, so long as you can be reasonable and um, and tell them what you can and what you can't do and really set those expectations. I think that's, and it's no different than doing it behind the reference desk, honestly. You're always sort of working, you know, trying to, you um, You know, let people know the parameters of what you can and can't do. So,
1: Scott, I work in a an all graduate library. Like that's all we serve, and the degree to which these careers have been just catastrophically cratered in all disciplines, but history especially can't even get a monograph at this point. Um, It's super serious and really sad. I mean, it's not death, but it's also, you know, bare life. It's not all. So, I I feel you on that.
0: It's it and it it strikes me, you know, in a time in which so much has been brought online, both on the retail side of books, book buying, but also in the library access side, which is pretty phenomenal. I think about over the course of my life as a library user. Um, but boy, you scratch below one level, and you just see most of it's not there. Uh, and that's and-
4: what I do with most of my time. Um- is I, I run the the systems through which that digital stuff is found and served to patrons. And, and the moving off campus of every single function um, puts extra layers between as we have to authenticate, make sure you're allowed to see it. Um, and that has been, I think, really surprising, especially to undergrad and undergraduates who are used to that seamless access to it from on campus. Um, so that, You know, the the way things worked when they were on campus, it's not how it works now. And that barrier to entry has just gotten, even if it's small, it's a little bit higher. You now have to log in and you didn't have to log in before. Uh, And there are certain, for example, HathiTrust has an emergency temporary access, but you have to Mm -hmm. click, you know, seven different buttons in three different systems to get to the thing, and then that means you can't borrow the book from your library if your library is doing circulation because you mm. only have the number of copies that you have. Um, so it's just it's very tricky to kind of explain why these things happen. No, we can't do that because of licensing agreements. If we don't follow those agreements that we have with the multinational giant corporation like Elsevier, they'll just turn it off, and no one will be able to access it at all. So there there's a lot of that that is out of our hands and out of our power. And that, that itself is hard to explain to people who just expect it to be there, because usually we make it look fairly seamless. Uh,
0: John, I want to bring you in on, on this, anything that you've heard so far, but particularly to this point about that fragile relationship between the user and the material, which again, in my experience, um, you know, librarians serve, in that role to make it as seamless as possible. And every step you put between a person who wants to read something and find something and their ability to read it and find it, there's a greater likelihood they're gonna give up and go do something else.
3: Right, and special collections, of course, are famous (laughs) for the walls we've built um, for for many logical reasons, but those are walls nonetheless. And of course, this kind of a wall that we're experiencing now, far more physical and metaphorical at the same time is really hard to, it's really hard to deal with i mean i would just add on to to what everybody's saying that one thing this this has always worried me as a kind of a reference librarian myself at, at all times but i think particularly now that yes i think we're good at answering the questions that come to us and we all do the best we can but the unasked questions the the students we don't see the the encounters we can't have. I know that that's a significant part of what I do in in a regular work world. Um, Well, that's hard to measure. It's very hard to measure. And it's just that's another kind of, of research opportunity that's disappeared. I think it's true at the graduate student level, as well as the undergraduate level, you know, even though theoretically graduate students have more of a mission. But nonetheless, we, they, you know, we need each other to feed the the learning and it's really hard
0: to 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 keep that thread.
3: Um, now I find, John, despite me, all the things we're doing,
0: <laughs> let me stay with you on this because you mentioned undergraduates. So I'd like to hear from um, each of you um, that wants to contribute on this piece. Just thinking about how pedagogy has has changed the way that libraries and librarians interact with teachers um, at all levels, and I suppose you know, wrapping into that also the way that library and information services pedagogy has also changed through this through this time. I, my sense, at least, um, you know, through teaching throughout this last year is there was an assumption that we could take all our classes up online. And well, not everybody assumed that. Some people assumed that. Um, and the discussion was always about the relationship between the professor and the student. And then I I know so many colleagues who said, well, I've relied on libraries more this year than any time before as a as a teacher. I, John, I want to hear from you yeah, first so on your perspective on that.
3: I'll be quick because my colleagues here are, are leaders in this field. So I, um, I I think on the one hand, you know the 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 spark to innovative creativity has been impressive. I mean, there is a very active list multiple ones actually, but one that occurs to me of of uh, Librarians focused in, on teaching and pedagogy with primary sources. Uh, I'm sure my colleagues know about this, and they participate. In it and And which just, just sort of exploded in terms of presenting resources, coming up with ideas, suggesting technological solutions, um, kicking around interactive plans and schemes and setups. It's it's amazing, and I I, I lurk there a bit, and I, I because it's fascinating. Um, so, um, of course, all of this born by you know an enormous hardship. Uh, I've had some good moments. The um, the uh, realization that uh, stupid though this sounds that showing a, an original source, a document, an early printed book uh, on a little doc cam with a you know a hundred fifty buck thing that we were able to buy before they were all sold out to a class on Zoom hokey as that seemed to me, I proposed it, but I was like, oh, this ain't gonna work, uh, actually did in terms of uh inspiring some student engagement and questions and discussion with a faculty member. So there's there's been some good times. Nonetheless, my teaching volume is way down, my you know, the ability to sort of craft individual research with, with undergraduates, which I think is is a is a great frontier in, in special collections, you know, that I, I like our custom built world. You know, there are things to discover for every student. Well, that takes an enormous amount of our time and it's really, you really can't do it with a closed reading. We just can't. So I'll shut up now, but thanks.
0: You now let me bring others in on this, uh, the new demands on your work as what counts as teaching in the zoom space involves um, Emily, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't, um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about online education. I think, uh mostly it doesn't work I think it's not working um that's not to say that we haven't been effective right like we have been our workshops have that would get two or three people even if we offered donuts in real time have gotten 60 attendees I think that speaks less to how magical we are when we teach people how to use Zotero or another sort of resource or teach you to we had um there's a software that where you that helps you write, Scrivener. Scrivener workshops have been like through the roof, grant seeking workshops, those have been really positive. But I think it speaks less to the content and more to the need that people have had at least at the beginning of the pandemic to see some social space, like to be able to come together and like not be alone. So the sort of online Zoom sessions that we've done have been really strong. Um, I don't wanna stay this way forever and I worry that, that a lot of folks are sort of so excited about numbers that we're forgetting the who we're not seeing. And John, I think your point there is really like, it's just the people who have managed to come to the workshops, the people getting the attention and other people, there's no serendipity anymore. Everything is you sign up and register in advance or you, you're not doing it. Um, I'm also very worried about online education coupled with declining support for public goods and public institutions. So we just, we record all of our sessions. And so now you've got our Zotero recordings. And so do you even need us to run them again? And I, I, I'm pretty cynical about higher at this point in my career and a little bit afraid that that's what's going to happen to come out the other side of all this.
0: Mm-hmm. Jamie, your thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, I, I've been working with faculty a little bit more than usual. And part of it is what Emily just said is that all of a sudden there's nothing else to do. So you go to workshops you wouldn't have gone to because you had something more interesting to do in normal times. And I think that's true for undergrads, especially too, is, you know, there's no one to go hang out with. There's no interesting thing happening in your dorm room. There's no sports happening. You can't go on a date. So you might as well go to the library workshop.
1: Um, You should definitely just go hang out with Jamie and learn Zotero.
4: I've been making, even before the pandemic started, this effort to kind of pair um, what I do, which is the back of the house of library work, of in the software, in the systems, um, you know, working with catalogers uh, with pairing that with the librarians I work with who do uh, classroom instruction, who do information sessions and how to use the tools, who have a better relationship with faculty who actually see students. So I've been, um, you know, I did it before the pandemic in person and have continued doing it now on, on Zoom calls, going to those going to those instruction sessions and sitting in both to observe to see what happens, to see how I can fix my systems to serve people better. But then also to be able to start doing some of that work myself and say, I'm the expert of the system here, let me show you that trick you've never heard before. Or if it's you know, just one of the subject liaisons and something goes wrong, they might not know how to fix it on the fly and being able to jump in and, and fix it so that the students can actually get the thing to work during that 45 minute session they have with the librarian. And and so far, that's been really successful, especially with graduate students who who have that extra impetus of like I have to write my dissertation because this is my career. Where undergraduates still might t- tune out, but that you know that question there of, and and like Emily, I work at a public institution, the, the digital divide that normally you could just go to the library and and sit at the computers at the library or sit at the computers in the classroom on campus, um, and and watching students. Zoom in from a cell phone because that's the data they have and the tool they have to use. Um, and, you know, it, and looking past that to like when I'm in a department meeting with my colleagues at work, uh, especially some of our older power professionals who live up in the hills here where it's really rural and don't really have great internet access, access calling into Zoom calls on their, their landlines and not being able to see the visuals. So So dealing with that in a way that can't be gotten over because we don't, especially a public institution with tens of thousands of students, we can't just supply the, the useful technology to everyone and supply everyone with an inter- internet connection. And at least when they were on campus, that was to some degree, not always great, but something that could be done. Cause you can either see the person you're talking to live or you can use the resources of the campus that you share with the other students. Um, and not having access to that just makes the inequalities that already exist about race and gender and class and and things like that just uh, reified and reinforced when someone who's wealthy is going to get a better education because they have a reliable internet source and their own laptop and don't have to swap the phone with their siblings or their parents and be careful Mm -hmm. to use up all the data
3: which is going to happen in all universities private and public i mean i think we all see this no matter how elite your school is
0: just a a quick follow-up on that to um, to something Emily said a minute ago, too, you know, it strikes me, I mean, I guess I'd like to know, like, how your impact is usually measured. And we all bristle against that. But all of us, um, there's measures, usually not of our own design, which tell us how well we're doing at our job. And I, one of my worries right now um, is that if you can say, well, the library is still providing services, and therefore access is available, and then you quote a number, access is available to X number of people, but that uh, the harder measure and probably the more important measure, which is how many people are using materials or how many people are interacting with librarian and how long they spend doing that, that that measure, which to me would be equal, if not more important, is is not in the calculation right now. And then we'll just move past it. We'll say, well, we don't know about that, but we still have maintained access. So by that measure, we're doing what we need to do. Emily, I, I think I've made it respectable, but.
1: What jumps right to my head is door counts, right? That's like the number, like how many people came in, right? And we don't have that count anymore. And so we're already, like already they had taken the basement from us for some sort of digital teaching lab that was, I'm sure, important. But as a librarian who wants space for people to sit and read and work and don't tell my colleagues and digital initiatives I said that but I we lost all that space and now I don't have any door count evidence to tell you that students need the space I have some squeaky I'm lucky enough to have really squeaky wheels complaining a lot and really pushing me to open the space because they really need it and it's really important but that's not compelling but the sheer number of feet that foot traffic we're missing it and how am I going to hold on to my space is like keeps me up at night
2: Absolutely. And I mean, for myself, after spending so many years in public services, we live and die by those counts, by how many people in the door every day, um, all your circulation transactions as well, even in special collections. You know, these are the numbers that we need to be able to get funding, to be able to point to usage for grants. And um, now, of course, we can point to our digital statistics, which are through the roof and our reference queries are absolutely off the charts, like the people in reference are fielding them, I'm personally fielding them, um, because people are home. And the great part about it, I guess this goes back to the first question, is so we're seeing people really engaging with our digital content in a way that I think they hadn't been, because people are trapped at home. And so they're looking for, you know, they're, um, they're looking for things to do. And the other thing for us, though, that's gone through the roof are offers of material donations, because you have everyone at home, And the American Jewish Historical Society to take their baby pictures and their bowling trophies. And I spend an enormous amount of my day fielding these questions as well. But like Emily said, these are not the numbers (laughs) that are necessarily like what we're used to or what we need or that funders or boards are going to say, wow, that's great. So you rejected 50 donations this month.
1: Like what? (laughs) Melanie, I I thought I was the only one. It's like everybody. Everybody wants to give us all their books in French. I'm so
2: sorry. Oh, it's the worst. Terrible. And I basically just said to people, we're, um, we're not taking any donations. But also there's another piece to it. And um, because I also, we don't have the staff right now. Like we hardly, have, we have people in one day a week. So I honestly think it's unethical of me to say, we'll take this stuff when I know for a fact it's going to be sitting in the mail room or on the loading dock. And even when I get it up to my office, it's not going to be accessioned or added to any collections. And I'm telling people two to three years for even you send me that picture that's from the collection you already donated, there's no time, there's no bandwidth. and I and so <laughs> and I don't like to do that, but I also feel like I have to be upfront with people. like i don't I think it's unethical to take things that I know that are not gonna go anywhere or um, won't even end up in my hands probably for a significant amount of time. so.
3: Yeah, I think we're all dealing, you know, Scott, with what we love to call the backlog and the huge increase of that. Um, it's it's a reality of library work, but it it's extreme. On the other hand, you know, gifts and acquisitions are how libraries continue to grow, and it's not a pipeline that just can be turned off either. So it really is, we'll, we will create, we are cre- the process of creating a big mountain for ourselves that we then bigger, much bigger than it was, that then has to be dug out of. I would just say on measures quickly, I've always had uh, some battles with other colleagues about what the hell we're measuring and why we're measuring it and counting things. And, you know, that, that it's it's worth a show in itself, the business of the history of librarians counting stuff because um, it's intriguing. Um, uh, so, you know, um, but yeah, everything's topsy-turvy at the very least. <laughs>
4: Well, I, I, I wanted to say that one, one way that we've gotten through the pandemic at UMass is that when we were told by the university that the library's budget needed to be reduced, uh, we stopped buying physical books very much unless they were specific things requested by faculty or grad students and things like that, because no one can access them. So why would we buy them right now? Um, and that way we had more money both to keep on staff. And I think that was an excellent decision that my administration made was to keep people employed instead of buying books. Um, and, and another
3: another be- legacy though, right? it's gonna you know well, without yeah, the yeah but,
4: and I think the the collecting decision there was that if we instead buy electronic resources, including ebooks, then people can access them now. Let's not buy stuff that's going to sit for a year waiting to be catalogued when we can have this money the small amounts of money we do have to buy things that can currently currently be used that we couldn't provide access to if we didn't buy them because but you know, isn't
1: this last year of print going to look bizarre? I just think it's it, like libraries are going to look like wastelands because they're yeah. going to have this year where nobody bought any print. And then whatever coming year is when no one could afford to buy anything. It's
4: yeah. going to well, be a trip. That Our statistics right now is we're in the middle of either migrating up or upgrading every single major system. So our numbers were going to look very strange anyway, since when the fiscal year turns, we're going to be running different systems with different metrics and different reporting. So.
0: started to get into that just now. into the, Well, first of all, I should take care of some business. I will remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking today uh, about libraries and librarians in the pandemic. And I'm talking with Melanie Myers, John Pollock, Emily Drabinski, and Jamie Taylor. And you can get your questions into the YouTube live chat. Just put them in the, in the chat. And we'll get to those. Or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of disaster with those. I did want to come to, we were getting into some Um, staffing issues, metrics, budgeting issues, a lot of things I had never considered until just kind of listening to you, you know, run through some of these challenges. The budget for digital access and digitization, one might think on an emergency basis has maybe been increased. That may not be a good assumption, but, you know, a point that was just made is when we go back to normal, whatever that looks like, um, I don't imagine magically you're going to have the budget to make up for the lost acquisitions, the lost staff time uh, to Melanie's point, the boxes of materials, yeah, people are home, and they're going through i'm I'm guilty of this um, going through old boxes of things that so, hey, you know the, an archive might really like this. I didn't drop my stuff off I'm going to say that, but um lots of extra work through this time has accumulated for you, and i I wonder how that discussion is going to look as people do start to move back into the physical library and say, yeah, we need a triple budget to be able to manage this. Melanie, let me start with you on this.
2: Uh, well, I mean, being, you know, special collections and archives, we have a continual backlog. I know, you know, I've heard of places to have 10, 15 years worth of um, archival processing. So I don't really see me pointing to the backlog that's been created by Covid, and that necessarily really getting me um, any traction to uh, to do, you know, to really be able to aggressively um, you know, take care of that. Um, you know, again, I'm just really at this point. I mean, I'm very grateful that we we didn't have to furlough any staff. We were extremely fortunate on that. And, um, you know, I just really hope that, you know, once we once we can really get people get get back in the building, then we can also restart some of these larger projects that do necessitate the bringing in of more staff, that then, um, you know, we can restart that productively. But right now, I feel like I'm just really focused on keeping the staff that I have and keeping them from burning out because I this is just such a stressful time. And I feel like remote work He's a whole different animal, and um, and this is just a stressful time all around. You know, it, just taking work out of the equation. So, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. I feel like next year. I mean, next year, I, I can't even imagine what next year is going to look like. I can't even. I feel like I can't even imagine what next week is going to look like. It's all right. just day to day in terms of how we're running operations, how we're making decisions, because uh, it's just situational, and the situation changes every day.
3: And, and the budget uncertainty is a big part of that. I mean, it's been interesting in my institution, I'll, I'll try not to get myself in trouble here, but the um, a lot of fiddling with big numbers, um, uh, great worry about cuts, uh, a sudden increase for electronic purchases. You know, and I'm in Special Collections Library, so not, this doesn't directly affect me, but it's a part of the library. I'm a researcher, you know, where it affects us all. Uh, actual increases in some areas. Uh, On the other hand, uh, we did let staff go. All of our temporary, part-time staff and student workers, including the colleague and friend who Scott you cited at the beginning of this uh, broadcast, were dismissed. Um, uh, Okay, they couldn't work on site, but that was a budget decision. So we cut from the bottom. Um, It was an it's a very unhappy moment. I I continue to and, and so we're so and and the the numbers equations of where money is going and where it isn't, uh, always complicated, right? It's not it's never, you know, it's not like it was pure smooth sailing ever. Nonetheless, it's become very muddy and very and there's there are sort of unspoken conflicts there that I fear will will be real possibly traumatic that you know, now and in the future.
0: We'll oh, see. I'm- I mean, I want to keep that on on one side, and then on the other side, I hear, we all hear more than ever, for very good reason, that um, because of disinformation and conspiracy and this whole last year that we lived through in which access to information um, that has some force of truth and evidence behind it is more necessary than ever for the functioning democracy writ large. But let's talk about universities specifically. That there is, and I hear this all the time, what should a history department do? We need more and more civics. We need more and more just access to good factual information for students. Can you do that for us? And the idea that you would do that and amp up that discourse while at the same time you're draining funds off from the libraries Maybe you can do that and get away with it for a little while, but Jamie, let me bring you in on this first. In the end, that that's the house of cards as far as I'm concerned.
4: So I'm gonna be Debbie Downer again and and I want to first put into this discussion that a lot of the disinformation combating that is says should that the universe kind of says should be done doesn't work. And So when we say, oh, the history department needs to do this or the library needs to do this and teach information literacy, that is utterly insufficient in actually dealing with the problem of disinformation that we have, especially in the U.S., especially right now. So it's almost secondary to that budget question of how do we fund that because it doesn't work. And and I think really... In research, sorry, um, that has been coming out very, very recently on what actually does work. Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of that. It's we somehow have to get our our weird human brains to just like not go down those rabbit holes. But the, the strategy of going down the rabbit hole to figure out it's wrong, it turns out it doesn't work. And yet that's what we keep saying we need to do.
0: Emily, let me bring you in on that. I mean, w- one thing I know has seems to work from the literature I've read, at least is, is trust and relationships. You know, people turn to trusted sources and it brings back again, I think this conversation around the need to continually foster trust, um, in the library space that people who work in libraries should be part of that equation.
1: Right. I mean, I think like the connections are how we know things and how we come to understand the world. I, I totally agree with Jamie that, telling people and equipping people with information skills is not the answer. I just don't think it's, um, it's not about better information circulating. You know, I think that the attention needs to be paid to infrastructure, it needs to be paid to utilities, it needs to be paid to, what are the systems that we're designing that are making some kinds of information retrievable and other kinds of information not retrievable? Who's paid to be in the space of Facebook like moving information around? Compare a union website right, to a the website of some far right wing fanatic, right? Like they, they might, I don't know, now that I say that, I'm like, they probably have equal number of like, sort of flashing gifts. But it's also the power that some sort of parts of society have to dominate communication infrastructure seems much more relevant to me than making sure that the library is there. But does the library play a significant role in making information available and retrievable and circulating it? Absolutely. And without us, um, that's a that leaves a huge big gap and a big hole. But I don't think teaching people how to evaluate information outside of um, big systemic and infrastructural change would be particularly meaningful.
3: I'll just say that I think on the on the more positive side, I think my library and institution around it have been pushed in some good directions by this year of crisis. We're in the process of hiring a new curator of civic engagement. That's a new position. Um, which will reinvent what, what curating means and what community connections might mean, I think, in, in the city. I hope. Um, I was just before this call, uh, sitting in on the Pen and Slavery Project report, which the library played some important roles in. Um, just myself a small one, but, um, you know, uh, also pushing ourselves toward new kinds of engagement historically and in the present time that maybe are good outcomes of where we are, have been going through this year.
0: Let me stay with that for a second, John, because I was, I was going to ask about that. You know, kinds of demands that you're seeing that maybe you hadn't seen before, or with an urgency that you hadn't seen before uh, through the racial justice struggles, which are ongoing for some populations in the United States, but many other people discovered them for the first time through the spring and summer. And where do they want to turn? Well, one of the places they obviously want to turn is to archives, special collections, libraries that are going to help them make sense of those struggles over time. I know Penn is one of the places, but I've lost count now of how many universities at least have started a process of just finding out their own history with slavery. So here you again, once again, on the one side, you say, well, that's a positive social good. I'm, go- I'm so happy people are asking about Drexel University's history with, um, with slavery, for example. But that, now where are we going to turn for that? Well, go to the library. They've got it. Go to the archives. I'm sure they've got it. And the ar- And they're closed. It's more of my statement and a rant than a question, but I, I, I guess I wanna sort of open that up for some some feedback. John, back to you on that first and then I'll open it to others.
3: Um, okay, you know, right, fair enough. Um, on the other hand, uh, here's where the electronic push can can really maybe pay some dividends. You know, I, I'm watching students uh, demo apps uh, based on with connected to archival material that we've scanned or that my colleagues have scanned um, that pres- that are, you know, in process, but some amazing attempts to sort of rethink the way the materials can be used in a campus setting, in a larger pedagogical framework, in a larger national discussion. Um, And those are cool and important for, you know, people like me to sort of be compelled to think about, okay, since we don't have the come in and see it and do something with it model, let, let's really push the envelope on what else we can do, and I'm hoping some of that envelope pushing, which takes research, which takes technology, and right, don't have to tell you all this, which takes infrastructure, uh, and and investment and money. You know, uh, I hope it will continue nonetheless. Challenging though it is,
0: we're almost up on time. I wanted to. I'm going to get one more question and get around for everybody to get a chance to answer this, and it has to do with how uh, you see training um, for people coming up behind you in libraries, information, science, uh, special collections. How's that training going to change? I mean, one thing I've heard is that, I don't agree with this, but for all of us, we're going to go back to some normal and this period will just be kind of an aberration and we'll let it go. Um, I'm curious to hear from you, and Melanie, I want to start with you. What do you think about that? How do you think pedagogy of library and information sciences is or should change as you come through the pandemic?
2: Oh yeah,
0: (laughs) and I'm not going to give you enough time to really answer, but but at least sort of headline level.
2: I I mean, there's there's a lot of different issues I think with how um, with library school and how we educate people, particularly within special collections, Um, and some of that I try, try to rectify through my own teaching, which has. Um, I tend to teach through a really access-focused lens rather than a materials-focused lens. Um, And a lot of special collections, we have traditionally privileged materials over users. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I think that we are much more access-focused. We are much more open. We do um, a significant amount more outreach than we do. But I think that's a really um, important thing. For us to think about and change and to also especially in this new digital environment because there are so many more opportunities for us to share our materials with people in ways that we really hadn't i think leveraged properly before you know we've had an enormous amount of success we did these little short videos that were called live from the archives i didn't think anybody would want to watch this who would want to watch me standing in the archives like blathering for 20 minutes i was blown away by how many people wanted to watch this and how many questions we were getting in the chat. So it's also, and that's another aspect of it too, which is not just engaging say with graduate students or undergraduate students, but also how do we engage with the general public and how does special collections maybe do a better job of that and thinking about that as a core piece of our mission as opposed to just sort of, um, you know, within the academic environment that we're all kind of accustomed to, I would say. It's our
1: comfort zone.
0: Emily, can I bring you in on this question?
1: Sure, as my friend Carol sadly tells me every day, these are the good times. So what's coming for us in terms of like continued attacks on the public sector, it's like dire and scary. So if I was designing a library school curriculum, it would have a whole track called how to How to be ready by getting ready and staying ready. And conversations mm. of, that are explicitly about power, how to build it and how to share it and how to uh, use it to get what you need and to fill your demands. I think anybody who doesn't have those skills right now is gonna have a very, very tough next decade.
0: John, your thoughts on training the next generation?
3: not much to add to those powerful words, except that um, tying the technology to the materials, not separating them. I mean, Jamie's point a few minutes ago about, you know, let's get the multiples divisions of librarians in the same room having conversations together. I mean, in terms of how librarians are trained, at least there's a chasm or has been a chasm between the work many of us do on a daily basis and what library schools have, many of them at least, have sort of privileged. And I'd love to rethink that. And I'd love to rethink all of our roles. And, you know, um,
0: there's a lot lot we can talk about there. Jamie, I'm going to give you the last word as we wrap up on this.
4: I'll try to make it a good one. And I want to bring in two things as we talk about the future of librarianship and training new librarians. One is something that we can see just in this in this little group of us alone is that we're very white. And that needs to change. And there are reasons why that's hard to change. And one of those reasons is the second thing I want to mention, which is the cost of becoming a librarian. It grad school to become a librarian is very expensive. And it's very hard to get funding. So most new librarians finish grad school with a lot of student debt. And that's only been increasing as throughout the entire academy, we've seen decades at this point, since the late 60s, increasing expense put on individuals and defunding, especially by states and the federal level. So we have to think through why librarianship is so white and how we change that. And a lot of how we change it is by making sure that it is not prohibitively expensive to train new librarians. So here at UMass, one thing we're doing um, is thinking through how we, even though we don't have a library school at UMass, we have a couple nearby, can support young librarians to be of color, especially black and indigenous librarians to be, and we're trying to create a fellowship, which of course is kind of hard since we're a state institution um, and the funding has to come from somewhere. But thinking even if, even if we, this one institution can make it possible for a few students a year to make it through grad school without the debt, all of a mm-hmm. sudden we have more people of color in librarianship, especially black and indigenous librarians.
2: And Jamie also just, because um, you and I are in agreement about this, a big part of that also is the unpaid internship and as a profession we need to all stop it (laughs) like I think personally but
0: yeah let's get on that well powerful words to finish with and I'm sorry to draw this to a conclusion it sounds like we're going to need a part two of this discussion I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m eastern time and um I'll be back on Monday to continue the discussion um, with some of the scholars who are doing work with the LePage Center at Villanova Villanova University. So I want to thank my guests for for today, Emily Drabinski, Melanie Myers, John Pollock, and Jamie Taylor for a really lively discussion about libraries and librarians in the pandemic. Thank you all for your time today. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you on Monday, 5 o'clock.